I ask you to stay standing and read these scriptures with me. Let us recite together and hear these portions of the story of God as they are written in the book that shapes our journey. Let's read together. All this time, Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciples out for the kill. He went to the chief priest and got arrest warrants to take to the meeting places in Damascus so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. And from the 19th chapter of Acts, when someone stubbornly refused to believe and spoke evil of the way before the congregation, he left them, taking the disciples with him. Also from the 19th chapter of Acts. But before he got away, a huge ruckus occurred over what was now being referred to as the way. And from the 22nd chapter of Acts, I went after anyone connected with this way, went at them hammer and tongs ready to kill for God. I rounded up men and women right and left and had them thrown in prison and just one more from John, six, uh, John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. The story of God told for the people of God. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we just heard five different scriptures. We read and heard five different scriptures this morning that all shared a particular label or name in common. Did we hear it? The way, belonging to the way, spoke evil of the way. A huge ruckus, which is a fun word, right, by the way. Ruckus occurred over what was now being referred to as the way. I went after anyone connected to this way. That's because of these scriptures and the history and tradition that have preserved this remembrance that we know 2,000 years later that before the disciples were known as Christians, they were known as people of the way. Before the term or label Christianity even existed, following the life and teachings of Jesus the Christ was known as following the way. And we can see why, because that last scripture that we read from John 14, Jesus said, I am the way. And that's where the title came from. Those words inspired the label. Jesus said that he was the way so that any who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, those who sought to follow him as their brother, their shepherd, their rabbi, they were called followers of the way. That label, that title for followers of Jesus hasn't been lost to history. It's still around. We know about it, but we don't really use it. It's more of a fun fact for us than it is a reality. Why is that? Why are we Christians and not people of the way or followers of the way? Why is it referred to Christianity and not the way? Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands this morning, but I do want you to be honest with yourselves in your hearts and in your minds. Have you ever heard Christians or Christianity referred to in a way that made you cringe? Have you ever heard Christianity summarized in such a way that it was not what you understand it to be? Have you ever given yourself a different label besides Christian, something like Jesus follower 
or a disciple of Christ? I have. Maybe it's just me, but I think there are times when the label Christian has just seemed too small or too familiar for what I was experiencing as I tried to follow Jesus. In the pivotal work, The Divine Conspiracy, theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard wrote these words. Overfamiliarity leads to unsuspected unfamiliarity and then contempt. That's a lot. Let's listen to it again. Overfamiliarity leads to unsuspected unfamiliarity and then contempt. There's a great deal in those eight words. To start with, what is overfamiliarity? What does it mean to know something so much that we become overfamiliar with it? Have you ever been so familiar with something or someone that you stopped noticing? You stopped paying attention, stopped taking in new information and new stimuli? I could be wrong, but I think that's what Dr. Willard was talking about. I think he was alluding to the reality that in our attempts to control the chaos, to manage all the data that's flying at us, that we have developed some amazing abilities to summarize, to get to the core, to sum up what is important and only retain and remember what we determine are the essentials. Cliff's notes, if you will. Now, we are extremely gifted at taking the complex and indefinable and reducing it to a containable, portable definition. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We define and contain so that we can organize and manage, which is not a bad thing at all. In the world in which we live, our abilities to define, contain, organize, and manage can actually help us survive. I think Dr. Willard would say that our Cliff's notes, however, can become a problem when they try to contain the uncontainable, when in an attempt to define the indefinable, we reduce it. To be honest, we change it into something smaller and more manageable. Think about it this way. What if I left here and went to the Louvre, if I'm saying that right, the Louvre, the Louvre in Paris to see the Mona Lisa, sat in front of it for a few moments, sketched my own version of it with a pencil and paper, left the Louvre, came back home, stood before you, showed you my sketch and told you, you have all now experienced the Mona Lisa. You'd all say, no, Daryl, that's not the Mona Lisa. And I'd say, yes, it is. I went there. I saw it. I drew it. This is it. You have experienced the Mona Lisa. Maybe Wes had been to the Louvre himself. Maybe he'd look at me and say, I've been to the Louvre, Daryl. I know the Mona Lisa, and this, sir, is no Mona Lisa. Or maybe Jenny had not only been to the Louvre and seen the Mona Lisa, but had her own sketch of the painting. What if Jenny stood up and said, that can't be the Mona Lisa, Daryl, because this is the real Mona Lisa experience. Now, at this point, any artists or art historians in the room, someone like Clayton, would smile, pat us both on our sweet little simple heads, and let us both know that while he appreciated our efforts, none of us had captured the Mona Lisa. Clayton would know better. 
he would understand that what was in our sketches represented what we saw, what we experienced, and drew during our time in front of the Mona Lisa. But as a student of art, as a disciple of artists, he would know there was more, that we hadn't captured it all. Now, I happen to know Clayton pretty well, so I'm pretty confident that although Clayton would let me know that my sketch was not the Mona Lisa, he would still value and appreciate what I had done, and he would encourage me to keep going. He would love that I had made the pilgrimage, spent the time, wrestled with the art, and made the effort. He would know that I could spend the rest of my life trying to capture the Mona Lisa and never do it. But he wouldn't dissuade me from the attempt. He would know that my journey would lead me to change and suffering and joy. And so he wouldn't dismiss my Mona Lisa. He would say, keep going. He might even offer to share his wisdom of his own artistic journey with me. As an artist himself, Clayton knows the journey and the transformation that it brings along the way. And he knows that that's more important than if I ever really capture the Mona Lisa. The journey and the transformation it brings along the way. And there's that phrase again, the way. What is it about that phrase? When I say the word Christian, it's not a bad word at all. It means someone who believes Jesus was the Christ, someone who follows the Christ, right? That's what it's supposed to mean. Christian is supposed to mean someone who adheres to Christianity, the monotheistic religion based on the life and teachings of a first century Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi named Yeshua. A man whose followers claim was God in the flesh on earth. The Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of all, who came to show humanity that they were not alone, that they are loved and accepted by the creator of the universe, whose life and teachings and death and resurrection are the model for living and loving in the kingdom of God, whose path leads to lives that access heaven right here, right now, whose calling was to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the favor of the Lord, whose repeated words of be not afraid to his disciples continually encourage them towards lives dedicated to generosity, inclusivity, and love. A man who claimed to be the way and patiently told all who would listen, follow me. Does all that come to mind when we hear the word Christian? Or are you like me and the word Christian has become a word with which you are over familiar? If you're like me, what comes to mind under the label of Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. I think if we were to ask 10 people on the street what a Christian is, that's what they would say. Someone who believes in Jesus. But I got to ask this morning, isn't that the Cliff's Notes? Isn't there more to being a Christian than believing in Jesus? Isn't that trying to reduce something big and transcendent and uncontainable into something manageable, something that we can organize? I think Dr. Willard would say that the yes or no questions the small, containable, manageable answers 
are things with, with which we can become familiar, really familiar, so familiar that we can master them. Like questions that are only about what we believe. Do I believe Jesus was real? Do I believe Jesus was the Son of God? Do I believe Jesus walked on water, healed the sick, rose from the dead? Do I believe Jesus died for me? If I answer yes to all of those questions, which I do, then I have contained and mastered my belief. My answers and the stories that inform them can be categorized and organized, and they can be easily shared and memorized. I can write them down, teach them in v- at VBS, stitch them on a pillow, capture them in a precious moments figurine, print them on a bumper sticker, or make them into a textable GIF. Okay, I have to tell you that I had a debate in my house with my sons if that's GIF or JIF, and it, went, it didn't get resolved. So, GIF or GIF, whatever it is. I know them so well that I don't even have to think about it. I become over-familiar with them. But here's the thing. That over-familiarity, according to Willard, can actually surprise me as it turns into unfamiliarity. My attempt to summarize and master my belief can actually distance me from the very faith for which I was first motivated to reach. As I become more and more comfortable and familiar with my containable and definable answers, I move further and further away from that which inspired me in the first place. Over-familiarity leads to unsuspected unfamiliarity and then contempt. And contempt is the terrible final link of that terrible chain. I can so settle into my smaller, more manageable notions that I end up distrusting the unwieldy, transcendent dreams that originally called to me. I not only lose my ability to recognize the indefinable, I can actually develop contempt for it when it contradicts my definitions. I memorize the cliff notes and I dismiss the novel. Jesus didn't say, believe in me. He said, follow me. I am the way. So let's talk about the way for a minute. The word used by Luke in Acts 9 and 19 and 22 that we read this morning, the same word used by John to quote Jesus saying, I am the way, is the Greek word hodos. Everybody say hodos. Hodos can be translated as way or path or road or journey. Now, what does it say to us that early followers of Jesus the Christ define themselves as people of the path or followers of the journey? What does a title like that include? Being a follower of the journey seems to imply more than just what we believe. It's not that what we believe is unimportant. Quite to the contrary, what we believe is very important. Our beliefs are part of us. They go with us on the way. But there is more to this journey than what we believe. So what do we know about journeys? We know that journeys take time. Lots of it. 
Journeys aren't vacations or weekend getaways. Journeys are epic. They have huge arcs and lots of side stories and tributaries. Journeys are never captured in a photograph or a selfie. They're hard to encapsulate or organize or reduce. They simply have to be experienced and undertaken. We know that journeys need space and grace and lots of both. We can't undertake a journey in our suburban backyard, at least not in my backyard. We're going to need more space than that. Journeys cover a lot of ground, not just the territory that we are used to, not just the home front. The comfort of our home is important. It will help strengthen us for the journey. But in order to journey, we have to get beyond the living room. Journeys take space. But they also take grace for ourselves and for others. Journeys fly in the face of the myth of the singular precedent. Now, the myth of the singular precedent says that if we go back far enough and we look hard enough, we can find the original path, the original right way, the one that hasn't been wrecked by outside influences and culture. But journeys declare there is no such thing as one right path. Journeys, like the 23rd Psalm, talk about paths of righteousness. We know those words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. These images are all from Israel. That 23rd Psalm is a pastoral poem. Pastoral, not like pastor. Pastoral, like shepherds. We get that, right? The first line of the 23rd Psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's using shepherd imagery. Shepherds have to lead their sheep in Israel up and down these things that are called tells, little hills and mountains. And so... There are well-worn paths all over Israel where shepherds have been leading sheep for thousands of years. And what you see here is there's not one. All of those grooves, all of those are trails. And they are actually called paths of righteousness. This is what David was referring to when he wrote the 23rd Psalm. He was a shepherd. He knew that. He had walked up and down these paths himself. Journeys acknowledge that there is more than one path up the mountain. Now, sure, some of those paths might be harder. Some might miss the sights. Some might involve dead ends and backtracking. But they're all paths nonetheless. And part of coming to grips with being a people of the journey is awakening to the reality that when we meet someone along the way who has traveled a different path than our own, it doesn't invalidate the path that we took. Each of us is part of an infinitely diverse creation, an infinitely diverse creation from an infinite God. The very nature of God is irreducible. God can't be reduced. 
God can't be summarized. God can't be contained in our cliff notes. So it should make sense to us that there are paths of righteousness. It should make sense that an infinitely diverse creation would present equally diverse experiences and understandings of an infinite creator. Learning of different paths, meeting people who have come by a different road than we did, hearing of experiences that are strange to us, these aren't things that threaten people of the journey. These are the things that enlarge us along the way. These are the things that remind us there is always more to God, more to Jesus, more to our faith. They remind us that the journey continues. Paths of righteousness aren't a threat. They make us bigger, more expansive, more generative, more compassionate, and more loving. And becoming more loving points to something else we should know about journeys. We know journeys require relationship. We don't undertake an epic on our own. And even if we try, we realize very quickly that it just can't be done. We need help. We need leaders and partners and followers. We learn from storytellers and sages. We look to lovers and fighters. We hear from counselors and those who need counsel. Undertaking a journey, continuing a journey, surviving a journey, processing and understanding a journey, these are all communal acts. They require other people. And just like people, we know that journeys are dynamic. Journeys aren't just one thing, one season, one mode. Journeys bring seasons of change, which lead to seasons of suffering, which give way to seasons of joy and new vision, which call us into seasons of sharing and serving those behind us on the path. Journeys inherently lead us into uncharted territory. It is downright impossible to become over-familiar with a journey precisely because journeys are dynamic. They're changing. They're headed somewhere. They don't stay in one place. Unplowed ground will be broken up. New lands will be explored. Strange waters will be navigated. The unfamiliar will be faced. Now, all of these things that we know about journeys, the fact that they take time, that they need space and grace, that they require relationships, and that they're dynamic, point to and illuminate the overarching truth we know about journeys. And that is that we know the journey will transform us. We don't finish the journey the same way we started it. We get changed. We end up stronger or weaker, wiser or more confused. We receive calluses and scars and soreness. We tell harrowing tales and hilarious stories. We hear tears and fears and chants and silence and roaring laughter. And each step makes us different than the last. 
we are transformed by the journey. Is that the invitation of Jesus? An invitation to transformation? Is that the way? Do we hear that invitation? An invitation echoed by all travelers before us on the way for the last several thousand years. I want to invite you to close your eyes this morning and listen to this invitation. An invitation by Jesus the Christ. He says, come, follow me. I am the way. I am the journey. Let's undertake a lifelong, ever-changing journey together. We've all the space that we need. We'll see lands you never imagined. We've lots of people to meet and learn from and help and forgive and love. Bring your beliefs. We'll need them. Just know they may change a bit along the way. We do have some changing to do. Parts of this journey will be incredibly difficult. We will not complete this journey unscathed. But I will be with you. I love you. You are not alone. I know where we are going. And I will never leave you. You can open your eyes. Did you hear that? That's a big invitation to a journey that's even bigger. It's uncontainable. It can't be summarized. There are no cliff notes for this. We can't memorize it or master it. We can't become over familiar with it because it's too dynamic and too uncontrollable. It's exhilarating, daunting, intimidating, and even scary at times. But we have a brother, a shepherd, a rabbi, a messiah, and he knows the way.